Oh, for grace to love him more and to trust him more. God's word calls us to rejoice in him because all that we need and all that we desire is found in Christ. It's available to us by grace through faith. And may we embrace that this morning as we rejoice in him. Our call to worship is from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Amen. Let's stand.
Amen? Amen. Read with me from Isaiah 51, 6. Lift your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Let's sing When I Survey. Communion is the time that we as a church get to reflect on the wondrous cross. In light of what we just sang, Jesus himself establishes this for practice for us to both remember and celebrate what he's done. He did it in such an experiential way that we can taste and see what he went through and what it means for us. Communion for us as a church is a practice we do as those who are professing believers in Christ. If that's not you today, if that's not you yet, I would like for you just to take a few moments as we, uh, as we listen, as we reflect on, on some words, and consider placing your faith and trust in Jesus so that you too may join us at the table in reflecting on who Christ is. This morning, as a part of our reflection, we are going to read the Apostles' Creed to remind us of the fullness of who God is and what He's done. 
So the words are on the screen behind me, and let's read together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, Go ahead and take your elements now and turn it over and open the bottom of the cup so you can get the bread. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians what communion means. And he says this, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was portrayed took the bread which had been given to him and gave thanks. And he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you, do in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Now carefully open the other side. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can come and celebrate and remember the payment you paid on the cross for our sins the blood that was shed as an atonement for us, but also your resurrection. That you rose from the grave, sealing our security in you. And so, Lord, we celebrate that today. The hope that we have in you and the hope that we have in your return. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to communion with the last verse of When I Survey.
Good morning, church family. We want to continue. Oh, sorry, I get a little fast in that. Uh, we want to continue our worship this morning through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the ushers to come to the front. As a reminder, there are many ways to give, and we give joyfully. You can give online uh, at our website. You can give in the plates, or if you need to, you can send your check to the office of the church this week. Ushers, you can now pass the plates. This morning during offering time, uh, I want to invite uh, part of our high school Albanian GO team to come up and to share some of what God did over that trip. So would you uh, give them a hand as we uh, have them come up to share? Well, thank you, Brent. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannah, and I help lead our high school ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church. And I also had the opportunity to help lead one of our high school GO teams to Albania, along with Brent, actually, uh, which was super fun. And we took eight high schoolers with us to partner with our 23-year-long missionaries there, Eric and Kathy Gundy. Um, but we took eight high schoolers, and two of them are here with us this morning. We have Yanidis and Lena. And so before we get to any of the other questions I have, Lena, could you take the task and try to summarize what we did in Albania? Yeah, so as Hannah mentioned, we went to Albania and we were in a town called Urseca and we worked at a camp called Crossroads, which basically is an adventure camp. And what we did there is all 10 of us got to work with kids through small groups, being small group leaders. We got to do canoeing, we did crafts with them. And it was really a good time to encourage the kids through God's word and just to get to talk about God and how their faith is. And we got to do that through small group times at the end of the night as well through chapel and even during free time just getting to know them. And we also, as being part of the staff, we got to make connections with the staff also that worked there during the summer through doing dishes with them after every meal. And they got to have us experience their culture by teaching us some Albanian dancing and a lot of the Albanian language. Mm -hmm. so it was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. We served with, I think, middle school, right? 12, yes, to, 14. 12 to 14. I mean, three meals a day, 120 campers. It's a lot of dishes, but a lot of fun. So I know that there were so many highlights for our whole team, and Yanidis, you've been sharing a story whenever you come home about one specific highlight that you had. Could you share that story with us? Yeah, so for me, I was a small group leader, so I was able to get to know the kids in my group really well throughout the week, but there was one kid in particular that I got to know really well over breakfast. So I noticed this kid in particular wasn't really engaging in conversations during small group. So I ended up asking him, what did Jesus mean to him? And when he, I asked that, he looked at me like, why did I ask that? <laughs> but he ended up responding how he didn't believe in Jesus because he didn't see Jesus' presence. And I found this the perfect way to share my own testimony, but also show how I've seen God's presence. So I explained to him how I've seen God's presence through the word of God, um, prayer, and worship. So he, it looked like he was processing everything, and he ended up asking more questions, which was really cool to see. And he asked me, like, how have I continued my faith, even though I don't see it sometimes, and things like that. And I noticed that throughout the week during small group, after the conversation, he ended up um, engaging in conversations. So it was really cool because as I reflect, I'm like, whoa, like now he's 
kind of putting his feet in the water with his faith. And on the last day, he gave me a huge hug. And he was like, thank you so much for being my small group leader. And I went back and asked him the same question I asked the, the first time. I asked, what does Jesus mean to you now? And he said he somewhat believes now. So it showed how God was in the midst of this whole camp because he came in not believing to somewhat believing and taking that little step. Yeah, I think that's such an incredible story because you took that step at breakfast, right, super early in the morning, and yet engaging in those conversations. And I think that was just one of the many conversations and stories similar to what the rest of our team got to experience. I think over half of our team got their uh, chance to share their testimony with a camper like that, which was really cool to see. Um, part of this trip isn't just what we do there, but it's also coming home and asking the question, as a missional Christian, what steps are you guys taking um, to think about what you can engage in missionally as part of your discipleship? Yeah, for me, as I processed the Albania trip, I noticed how much of a passion I have for sharing the gospel, but also getting out of my comfort zone. So as I go to school next, uh, next month, I want to be a lawyer. So I was trying to process how can being a lawyer and missionary come together. So it's really cool because now I'm getting like advice on how I can do both things, both passions of mine, and still work for like God and sharing the gospel mm -hmm. in my career. Yeah, so adding on to that, um, in a few weeks I'll be heading out to Arizona to be studying exercise science, so athletic training, and I have been really praying about just what God wants me to do for my next steps, and I've been getting a lot of wisdom from you and from Brent along the way as well, and I have decided that I'm going to major in exercise science, but then I will be minoring in Christian ministries, so I will be hopeful that after getting my master's in athletic training that I'll be able to take it onto the mission field and go from there. That's awesome. I'm so proud of both of you and so proud of our team and just all the ways that God worked through you and in you. Um, and if you could, please continue to pray for our other high school GO team. They left yesterday for Cleveland, and so they're starting their ministry there with Parma Heights Baptist Church throughout the week. But can we just give praise to the Lord for what he did through our students and in Albania? Thank you so much for sharing, and I'd encourage you, uh, if you see some of the students from the Albania team or other good teams, ask them what God's been teaching them and how God's been using them in these weeks this summer, because God's doing amazing things uh, across the globe and in our backyards, uh, both through all of our teams, but specifically in our high school ministry this summer. Let's, uh, let's pray, and as we pray, we're going to be praying about uh, uh, Albania and the ministry that took place there, as well as uh, what took place in the lives of these students, and for the word this morning. So let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you, and we give thanks for all that you have been doing, are doing, and will do throughout your entire global church. And Lord, we are thankful that we got to partner with you this summer in Albania. Lord, we thank you for uh, the long-term service of our Wheaton Bible Church missionaries, Eric and Kathy Gundy. Lord, we pray that you would continue to empower them and work in and through them for the ministry that they have of equipping young leaders throughout the church that you have planted in Albania. Lord, we pray for all the, gospel, all the students who came to the camp that heard the gospel, some of even which for the first time. Lord, would your Holy Spirit continue to work within the lives of those students as they go back to their towns and villages and cities. Lord, as they go back to their families, would you continue to cultivate the seeds of the gospel that you planted in their hearts. Lord, we pray for the church of Albania. 
a young church that's been birthed out of, uh, of the freedom now to be able to practice Christianity after communism. And we ask that uh, you would continue to uh, work in and through those churches as they are reaching young adults for you. And you are raising young adult leaders to lead within your church. And Lord, we specifically pray for our students, both that went to Albania, our students that are on our other GO teams. Lord, that you would work in and through their hearts, shaping them more and more into your image, but also placing in their hearts what you would have them to do for your gospel. Lord, whether it's for them to uh, be a light in their workplace and in their spheres of influence, or Lord, if you're calling them into the mission field. Lord, uh, uh, place mentors and, and other uh, church leaders and members around them. They're both praying for them, encouraging them, and giving them guidance to how to walk in you each day. And Lord, we ask again that you would also bless your word this morning. Lord, your word is powerful and active. And so we ask that it would speak to both our hearts and our minds today. May we see the truth of it and apply it to our lives. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 29 through 35. If you have your Matthew journals, you can turn there to page 136 to read along or read along on the screens behind me. It says this, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning again, church family. It is so good to be here. My name is Brent Sickle, and I am one of the preaching pastors here at White Wheaton Bible Church. And I want to welcome those of you who come to worship here this morning, as well as those of you who are online. And today, as you know, we are continuing on in our study of the book of Matthew. And our message title is The Return of the King. If you know anything about me, you would realize that I can't pass over this message or this topic today without the opportunity to add a Tolkien reference. 
In the chapters right after the final battle of the return of the king, J.R.R. Tolkien expresses a vision of cosmic renewal that closely mimics what we see in Scripture. God has declared that one day he will restore all things. And likewise, at the end of the book, Tolkien describes how evil has been vanquished and all things are set right. One of my favorite parts, though, comes right after the ring is destroyed on Mount Doom and Sam wakes up. Astonished that he's still alive and surprised to see his friend Gandalf, he asks him these words. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? These words by Sam are profound because it's different than asking whether good things are going to come true. Rather, it's asking if sad things are going to come untrue. You see, just like Sam, we as believers recognize that there's something terribly wrong with our world. It's filled with sadness, cursed by sin, and groaning as it waits its future restoration. But we know from Scripture those sad things will come untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be restored. The king will return. Amen? Our passage today talks on this. Last week, Pastor Kyle began walking us through Jesus' final major teaching, the Olivet Discourse, which we found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It also has parallel accounts in Mark 13 and Mark 21. And this is the longest discourse recorded in the Synoptic Gospels during Jesus' final week. Its length and central location make it the centerpiece of Jesus' instruction during his last week. And its entire focus is on the future and end times. So today, as we look at God's word, our focus is on the king's return and the hope of the promise fulfilled by all things by Jesus. To help with it, I know that we've been walking through and it's a little bit hard, but to help with this, because we're in part two of this discourse, we're gonna use the same format as Kyle did last week. So as we look at the text, we're going to look at what Jesus said, why he said it, and what does it mean for us today. What Jesus said, why he said it, what does it mean for us today. Let's look at what Jesus said. Let's look back at Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. I'm going to read again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near at the very gate. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As we read all throughout Matthew chapter 24, it contains numerous exegetical points that are difficult and over the course of history have spawned many different interpretations. The main debate involving the question of how many details of Jesus' predictions concern first century events, how many details deal with the future events, and how many are in both. Last week, Pastor Kyle began to outline some of these views and, and gave us three different branches that we are looking at them in. He said there are some that, that view these future events with a preterist view, meaning that these prophecies have already been fulfilled and were fulfilled within the 40 years immediately after Christ's death and resurrection and were fulfilled by the time of 70 A.D., there are those who look at this passage from a futurist point of view, that these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the future. He also gave the third view, this telescopic view, that these prophecies have multiple horizons to which Christ is predicting both events in the current context of his near future as well as the end times. And with all these differing things, the thing I want us to understand, though, is that most commentators today, as throughout all of church history, have agreed that within Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, we have reached a clear description of Jesus' public return at the end of human history as we know it. We have already seen Jesus earlier in the same discourse which we covered last week warn at length against interpreting his return as anything other that is personal, bodily, invisible. And we see in a variety of other prophecies similar language that speak not to a short time frame but rather conv convey the idea of imminence. That King Jesus, the everlasting God, not bound by time or constraints, will come and his, co his return will be soon and glorious. I love what Arnold Olson writes. He says, ever since the first days of the Christian church, evangelicals have been looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. They may agree, disagree on its timing or its events or the eschatological calendar. They may have differed as to pre-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture or pre or post or non-millennial coming. They may have divided into literal rebirth of Israel. However, all agree the final solution to the problem of this world is in the hands of the king of kings who will someday make the kingdoms of this world, his own. Amen? Amen. Amen. You see, we see overwhelming evidence all throughout Scripture as the certainty and the importance of Christ's return. And I want to emphasize that today. Christ's return is certain and important. In the New Testament alone, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. Christ's return is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. 
It also occupies such a prominent place in the Old Testament that actually most Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ point not to his first coming as the sin bearer, but also but to his second coming in which he rules as king. The return of Jesus is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books except for Galatians, the second and third John of Philemon. And so look at, you can see the importance. And so here today in our passage, we see Jesus speaking to his future return at the end of time and the certain fulfillment of all he has said in Scripture. And so church family, I want to be an encouragement to you that we would be encouraged by his word that Jesus is our eternal king who always keeps his promises. And so all that we have heard up till now that Jesus talked about in Matthew and all we will hear till the end of Matthew will become and fulfilled and is true and is full. So what Jesus said, he will return. Let's look at why he said it. The first reason we need to understand why Jesus said this is that Jesus is a central focus of biblical prophecy. Craig Bloomberg in his commentary says this, Christology and eschatology come together in this radiant portrait. Jesus is the exalted divine son of man and Messiah who one day returns from heaven just as he would ascend into heaven. And when that happens, the chain of events culminating in Jesus' officiating at the final judgment of all people of the earth will have been set into motion. Then all will weep. His people will weep with joy and his enemies with sorrow because they now recognize their fates are sealed. And despite numerous false prophets throughout the history of the church, whom Jesus himself predicted, no one can ever know the time that will be. So we must be prepared because it could be at any time. The return of King Jesus here foretold in Matthew 24 reminds us that Jesus is the center of God's kingdom. He is the ultimate king. And both the king and the realm of the kingdom are subject to so much prophecy all throughout Scripture and in the Old Testament. Even as we jump into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 begins with the declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not only is Jesus the right descendant, the rightful descendant of David and Abraham, but he's also the only one qualified to fulfill the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. All prophecies, all covenants of the Bible find their fulfillment in Jesus. The truth of this is emphasized when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the central focus of all biblical prophecy. 
The second reason why Jesus says these things about his future is that Jesus is fulfillment of both Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. Jesus is the focal point of all of God's promises and through him all promises, prophecies, and covenants are fulfilled. This occurred in the fulfillment of his Old Testament prophecies as well as the future fulfillment of all prophecies. Jesus even addressed this misconception as he was dealing with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 5 that we talked about earlier in our study, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abo- not to abolish but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all has been accomplished. You see, we can look clearly at Scripture and see whatever it says, whatever it is predicted to happen, will happen just as it says it is. God's word is truthful, and Jesus fulfills it. Jesus' emphasis on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in his ministry is seen earlier in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus uh, talks about the abomination of desolation and is speaking of Daniel. Then he explains about the events that will take place in the persecution and tribulation. He's reminding people of what was said all throughout the Old Testament prophets of Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. What I want us to see is that if Jesus viewed the details of Old Testament prophecies as important and needing to be fulfilled, so should we. The unique thing we get to see, though, is we get to see this viewpoint after the fact. And as the Gospels unfold, it becomes clearer and clearer that two comings of Christ will be necessary. And the understanding that two comings of Christ is important in grasping the fulfillment of all of biblical prophecy, both old and new. You see, the Old Testament predicted a Messiah would come and reign over a worldwide kingdom in Zechariah chapter 14. But this king would also suffer as a servant for the sins of the people in Isaiah 53. There may be little evidence in the Old Testament that these prophecies are two distinctly different things, but the truth of these two distinct arrivals of the Messiah are progressively revealed throughout the New Testament by Jesus. The reality of two comings means that the fulfillment of prophecies related to Jesus as occurs in stages. There are some prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and there will be others that will be fulfilled in his return. Prophecies related to the person of Jesus, his identity as the Messiah, the suffering servant Lord are fulfilled in his first coming. Prophecies related to his work on the cross as an atonement for sins are fulfilled. In addition, the establishment of the new covenant by Jesus with his death, is the major fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But we see prophecies related to the end times, the judgment of the Lord, the salvation of Israel, the Antichrist, the millennium, and other events connected to Jesus' second coming. 
Either way, we see the focal point of prophetic events still to come in the second coming of Christ are all through Jesus. And so we as a church need to understand that the belief in the return of our king is an indispensable doctrine of orthodox Christianity. In the New Testament, Jesus himself declares the necessity and imminency of his return. So we've looked at what did Jesus say? His return is coming. We said, why did he say it? Because it's necessary and imminent as he fulfills all of what he said he's going to do. The big thing for us now is what does it mean for us today? We could read all these things. We could know what God's word says and we could say, okay, Jesus is going to fulfill those things. But if it doesn't change how we live, it has not, has not impacted us. The thing I see is that we are just as worried today about the end as the disciples were 2,000 years ago. Predictions about the end of the world have taken place all throughout history. I know when I scroll through my TV, a popular National Geographic show pops up, Doomsday Preppers. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's something you watch. But this show shows so many Americans are now stockpiling food, water, weapons, and whatever else they need for life after a catastrophic event. Each summer at the cinemas, doomsday movies fill the screens trying to envision what the end might look like. Will it be a meteor? Global warming? Nuclear war? Maybe another infectious disease? At the same time, historians, scientists, and even religious leaders keep trying to predict the exact time and provide the answers to the question of the end of the world. Yet what we've just read this morning, Jesus makes it clear here in Matthew that the end is near. But the end comes the return of the king, our blessed hope as believers. So how does this reorient us? I want us to see this reorients us in three ways. First, that we're to be watchful. As the church, we are to be watchful. We are to be expectant of our king to return. Matthew 24 and verse 32, Jesus says it this way. The fig tree, learn, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts all out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. When I think about being watchful and expectant, uh, one of the things that I think about is watching a soccer match with my son Gavin. Okay, any soccer fans here? Or football? Yeah? So one of the things that you know about uh, soccer in, in America or football everywhere else in the world is it how a soccer match goes. 
the timing goes up. It doesn't go down. It doesn't end at zero. It goes towards 90 minutes. But if you watch soccer long enough, you realize it doesn't really end at 90 minutes, does it? No. They have this thing at the end of all these matches called stoppage time. Stoppage time is this time added to an end of a match for uh, other things that have taken place. And as you watch it, you get to the end of a soccer match, and you get the stoppage time, they put it up on the screen, and even when they show it, right, they'll say three minutes, four minutes. Is it really three or four minutes? No. It's about that time. And so as you're playing the match, you don't know the true end of the match. And so the soccer players keep playing to the very end, trying to score a goal, trying to win their team, trying to hold on to win, expectant and watchful of the final whistle. That's the picture I want us to have, that we are to be expectant of the second coming of Christ. Waiting eagerly for his return. You see, Jesus and every New Testament writer after him are all eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. You can read and hear through their words that they're straining forward to the day, almost on tiptoes as they yearn for his return. And the church is called to live with an alertness that Jesus could come back at any moment. That all begins here in Matthew 24, where Jesus wants us to be watchful for his return. The second way our text today reorients us is that we're to be prepared or spiritually ready. If we're expectant for our king return, we need to be ready for it. We cannot be caught unprepared. C.S. Lewis said in one of his essays regarding the second coming of Christ this. The doctrine of the second coming has failed so far as we are concerned if it does not make us realize that at every moment of every year in our lives, this question, what if this present world were the world's last night, is equally relevant. Let me read that again for you. The doctrine of the second coming has failed so far as we are concerned if it does not make us realize that at every moment of every year in our lives, this question, what if the present were the world's last night, is equally relevant. Let me ask this question this way. Would you live differently if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? We have to have an honest reflection on that. Would we live differently if we knew Jesus were coming back tonight? And then it makes us ask the question of ourselves, are we ready? Are we living in a way that we would be joyful to see our king return tonight? 
the struggle I see is I think as a church, we need to live more like this. Christ's return could be today, and this may be your last chance to repent. Your last chance to forgive someone. Your last chance to share the gospel. Will we, will we be prepared for our king's return? The third way this passage reorients us in, our, in the way we live is that we're to be faithful. We're to be faithful to the missional urgency of Christ's commands. Last week, Pastor Kyle talked about being faithful and perseverance as we're reminded to be faithful throughout struggle. But I think Jesus expands on that more in, in the second part of Matthew 24. And he reminds us to be faithful in our mis missional urgency of proclaiming the truth of the gospel and making disciples just as he commands in Matthew 28. I think it's so much so because we saw earlier in verse 14 that this end, part of the way we'll see the end come is that when this gospel of the kingdom is preached unto the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. And so the church family, let us not be caught just waiting around looking at the sky for his return or get caught up being distracted by the temporary things of this world, but let us be found faithful to the mission he has given us as disciples. Let's be known as faithful followers of an eternal king, watchfully expectant, prepared, so that when he comes again, we may rejoice that everything sad will come untrue in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word today. Your word today gives us the expectant fulfillment of your promised return. And Lord, we hope in that. We are not guessing, we are not uh, wondering, we have full assurance that you will return in full glory and power. And Lord, may our love for you not grow cold, but may we be watchful, may we be prepared, and may we be faithful in waiting for your return in fulfilling your mission. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. We're going to close today with a new song by the Gettys, so you can find it in your worship order. It talks about how the Lord Almighty reigns. So let's stand and learn this song together.
blessing that God gives us. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us so that his ways may be known in the earth and have salvation among the nations. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. Thank you.